Have you ever heard the expression, close but no cigar? A few of you, yeah, have heard that, uh, that phrase. And it originated in the United States back in the mid-20th century. And it took place, um, or originated actually at fairgrounds. And I grew up going to county fairs back in rural Illinois, and they were a pretty big deal because uh, they're a lot of fun, and you got to play games and ride rides. Uh, my favorite part as a young man was going to watch the demolition derby, okay, that took place every year. I mean, there was something so appealing to my twin brother and I about cars intentionally just like crashing into each other. And my dad actually even competed in the demolition derby one year. And so I don't think we slept for like that entire week in anticipation. Well, back in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, many fairgrounds uh, gave out the stalls where they, these games would take place. And they'd all be lined up in a row. There would be these game stalls where you could just play various games. They gave out cigars. And this was before the danger of tobacco was popularized. And I think that eventually uh, was cigars were swapped out for stuffed animals. Or that, that appears to be the case. Many of the games at the fairs involved throwing darts at balloons or objects or throwing rings that would uh, you would try to get around objects in order to win prizes. And so when someone would come close to winning a prize, but they would fall short, the phrase close, but no cigar, grew increasingly popular. And there are numerous examples in life when you can come close to something but fall short. You can make it literally one inch of the goal line in football and not score a touchdown. You can get all the numbers right on a lottery ticket with the exception of one and not win the jackpot. You can come close to catching a record-setting fish and you're reeling it in, and then you get it just within an inch of the boat or an inch of the net, and it falls off. You were close, but no cigar. And then there are other scenarios when the consequences can actually be devastating. For example, it does you no good if you come close to being saved from a car accident or almost stopping in time. And I'm sure you would agree that when it comes to life and death matters, the last thing you want to hear is, oh, you were so close. That surgeon was so close to that life-saving surgery that he was performing on you. For those who are old enough to remember, there was a popular stuntman named Evil Knievel. And he, that, this is revealing some age now. Um, raise your hand if you're old enough, okay, to remember Evil Knievel. Okay, he's an infamous daredevil. And evil, evil Knievel attempted to cross the Snake River on his jet-fueled motorcycle. It was this canyon that he was attempting to cross. And he took off with tremendous power. And then halfway across the canyon, guess what happened? His motorcycle and the power fizzled out. Well, thankfully, he was wearing a parachute that saved his life, as he, even, he understood 
that making it halfway or even one inch short is the equivalent of not making it at all. And the same can be said when it comes to entering the kingdom of God. Can you be close, but not close enough? This is an alarming consideration, as it should be. And today in Mark 12, Jesus is going to tell a scribe that the man is close to the kingdom of God. Not only will it instill fear within him and the other listeners, but it will instill fear within everyone who hears our Lord's response. Mark 12, 28 through 34, reveals the account this way. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that Jesus had answered them well, asked Jesus, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Pray with me and let's ask God to bless our study. Gracious God and Father, we bow our heads as a church family, praying that you would allow our hearts to be challenged this morning, and not just challenged, but transformed by the reality of what your Son is about to teach us. Our Bibles are filled with commandments, and yet here we see in a very clear way there is one that is foremost. And there is one that calls us to love. And Father, I pray that you would allow us, just as we put uh, this commandment under the microscope this morning and the direct objects that, that follow this commandment of love, that it would impact our hearts in great measure. And you would allow us to see new truths, allow us to have deeper convictions in areas of our lives where we compromise, where we we don't love you, where we, when we don't love others, when our allegiance to you is threatened and compromised. We pray that you'll use this in great measure. We commit this time to you, asking you to bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. In our current context, Jesus continues to be tested in the temple during the Passion Week. And all these encounters are taking place in the temple, most likely in the temple courtyard. Three different waves of conspirators have confronted him. The first wave of confrontation came in Mark eleven twenty seven, when the priests, scribes, and elders questioned the Lord's authority to cleanse the temple. We talked about this. This was a um, representation 
of the Sanhedrin. And not only did he cleanse it, but he went on to share a parable of judgment, letting the leaders of Israel know that their time of leading was coming to an end. The second wave of conspiracy comes in Mark 12, 13, when the Pharisees and the Herodians have this crafty little tax question that they're going to ask Jesus in hopes that he'll answer it. And um, one, either have the people turn against him, or even better, have the politicians turn against him and have him arrested. In both instances, our Lord's responses are brilliant. And this is why verse 28 starts out by saying, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognized that Jesus answered them well. He did more than answer them well. We witnessed it when we studied those passages. They were so precise. They were so targeted. It gave them no room to move. Right? He turned them on their heads. And this man who approaches Jesus represents the third wave of conspiracy. At first glance, he seems a little more friendly than the rest. But Matthew's account affirms that he is plotting just like the rest of them were. And he's trying to test or tempt Jesus to say something that can be used against him. This nameless scribe was an elite lawyer. And it's more than probable that he may have been the best and brightest amongst the bunch as they were getting desperate to trip up the Lord at this time. Little does he know he's speaking to the judge of the universe and the one who knows all things. Like a true lawyer, this scribe quickly turns the attention to the subject of the law, and he asks Jesus what commandment is foremost of all. And the word translated foremost can also mean chief, or first, or most important. People love to debate about what people and things are greatest in life, don't they? I saw recently on Facebook somebody posted amongst their friends, and asked, um, what is the greatest movie of all time? And of course, people began the debate. Some people said Star Wars, others Lord of the Rings, and then you had classics like uh, Casablanca and Ben-Hur, and people were arguing for their movie. Then if we turn to the world of sports, we often see similar debates. Everyone wants to know who is the GOAT. Who is the greatest of all time? When debating the greatest basketball player, some people say it's Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Wilt Chamberlain, or LeBron. Who is the greatest baseball player? Some say Babe Ruth, others say Willie Mays, Ty Cobb, or Hank Aaron. Then the greatest football players are debated. Jim Brown, Walter Payton, Jerry Rice, or John Crick. I usually encourage people to leave my name out of the discussion. <laughs> That's just because it already is. Okay? But on a serious note, interest in debating mega questions is not something new. This tradition goes all the way back to the time of Jesus when rabbis and religious leaders would sit around and they would discuss which commandment of God is the greatest. But I want you to take a moment and think about what drives this process, to, to debate what is the greatest. Think about that, just for a moment. And it may be, as I was even mentioning some of those things, like what's the greatest baseball player or basketball player, some of the men were like, well, we all know who that is, of course, right? 
But there's something associated with that. And it's our pride, isn't it? People somehow want to believe that they know what is best. And this was no different for the scribes and the Pharisees. In fact, they had identified 613 separate commandments in the Torah or God's law. 365 were considered negative commands and 248 which were viewed as positive commands. And then they divided them even further into heavy and light commands, or you could say uh, important or less important commands. And this is dangerous. And the more I thought about it, the more alarming it became to me. There are numerous dangers associated, but allow me to share two that are primary to, to our context. First, dividing up God's commandments takes the emphasis off God. It places the emphasis on the law keepers rather than the law givers. Excuse me, the law giver. As believers, our supreme focus shouldn't be on the greatness of commands, but it should be on the greatness of our God. If we truly serve a great God, then any commandment that he gives is important no matter how big or how small it might appear in the eyes of man. Amen? And that's the truth. Secondly, dividing up the commands and categorizing them by human standard compromises God's authority and can make them self-serving. If we say these commands are important and those commands not so much, well, guess what we've just done? We've usurped God's authority. And that happens because of how we view them. So it becomes subjective. You see that. It comes relative to a human standard versus what God decides is important. And the truth is we do this all the time in our hearts. We do. Maybe not to the extreme of the scribes, but we can be tempted to think that committing murder is this sin that just grieves God extremely, while at the same time minimize issues of lust in the heart or our willingness to forgive someone from the heart. Dividing God's commands is dangerous. And it's not coincidental that Jesus responds with what he does when he was asked what commandment is foremost of all. And this brings us to the first point in your outline. Love God with an undivided love. Jesus says this in verses 29 and 30. The foremost is here, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Of course, this quotation sounds very familiar. It's taken from the famous Shema in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Shema is the Hebrew word, which means hear. So it's that word right at the beginning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. That is why they call it the Shema. And this portion of the Shema served as a confession of faith, which was recited twice daily by pious Jews. Matthew and Luke's accounts don't include this phrase, probably because their primarily Jewish audiences didn't need them to, unlike Mark, who was writing to predominantly Gentiles. 
The inclusion was important for Mark's church in their debates with Jews in order to affirm that they were monotheists, not polytheists, as the Jews sometimes accused them of being. The phrase, here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, is crucial because the foundation to loving God is based on his oneness. As one commentator wrote, because he is one, Love for him must not be, must be undivided. The first part of our Lord's reply in verse 29 is saying, love God for who he is. And then verse 30, love God with all that you are. This is how we're to express undivided love. First, verse 29, love God for who he is. And note again the first phrase, the Lord, Yahweh, our God, Elohim. The Lord Yahweh is one. Here is the heart and soul of the Hebrew faith in the Old Testament. Yahweh was the covenant name, we know this, given to his people. Yahweh is our God and only our God. We have no other. Yahweh is one. He is one in essence. He is one in existence. He alone is God and there is no other. Do you hear that? Can you say that? Because if you do, we're living in a time where that's going to bring you some grief, right? Especially to the Muslim, to the Hindu, to the Buddhist, to anyone who serves in the numerous cults of this world. This is a powerful statement of uniqueness and exclusivity. Our God is God alone, and our God alone will only accept our exclusive worship, love, devotion, and allegiance. Old Testament scribes and teachers of the law could debate all they want, but Jesus begins by bringing them back to the most basic element of faith. We should love God because of who he is. So who is he? Who is he? Here are the words of the second great confession of the Hebrew faith found in Exodus 34, 6 and 7 provide a vivid description and I want to read it for you. I think I put that reference in your notes as well. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This was so essential to the Hebrew faith. And it's also essential for us to see it. God's love for believers is designed to be fuel for our love for God. We get that, right? Our, God's love for us is designed to serve as fuel for our love for him. And then you can add to this, our love for who God is fuels our obedience and our worship. Again, this remains true in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. 
And this is why whenever a believer, regardless of which testamental period you lived in, struggles and recognizes their sin, the counsel always remains the same. Look to who God is. Love God for who he is. When Israel sinned, they were to look to Yahweh and love the mercy and grace extended to them. Again, Exodus 34, 6 describes it and who he is so vividly. The Lord. The Lord. A God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Uses every term that there is for missing the mark and twisting up his law. Question for you. Is that your view of who he is? Is is that your view of your God? It should be. It needs to be. When Old Testament saints struggled with sin, their eyes were being directed to who God is. And this would lead them to love and obey and worship God through the sacrificial system that was in place for Israel. Now, we also need to see the other part of that creedal confession that's in Exodus 34, which includes the second half of of 34.7. And this was put in place. If any pattern of sin remained, then the second half needed to be emphasized, which also discloses who God is when saying, but God will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And this verse does not teach that children are punished for the sins of their fathers. It doesn't. But rather, it teaches that patterns of sin not repented of can be passed on to multiple generations. When we see who God is, not only does it allow us to see his steadfast love and willingness to forgive, but we also see his holiness. And we see consequences if we allow patterns of sin to continue in our lives. What a humbling reminder for us, both as children of God and as parents. Our sin patterns can be learned and passed on. And you might be tempted to say, well, doesn't that happen naturally through our shared depravity? Yes, and you'd be right. To some degree, you would be right. And to some degree, there's also shaping influences because of our patterns of sin. It can have a bearing on other people's lives, especially our children's. Impatient parents can raise impatient kids. That sin can be passed on. They can learn how to be more impatient by witnessing how we respond. And I'm pulling the dagger out of my own heart right now. But it's true. They're watching us. They're witnessing it every day. How you are responding, husband, to your wife. 
They are witnessing, wife, how you are responding to your husband. Selfish parents can raise selfish kids. And their lack of serving God, their lack of serving others can cause them to do the very same thing. And parents, if not careful, can teach their children to love and chase the same idols that they have loved and chased all their lives. Through sports and academic achievement and financial success. They see and witness what you are making important in your life. And in many ways that can have positive effects. But if our allegiance and our love to those things supersedes our allegiance and our love to the Lord, well then, it's an idol. We have made it an idol. It was Vodi Bauckham who said, if I am teaching my son to keep his eye on the ball more than I am teaching him to keep his eye on Christ, then I am failing as a parent. And I would add that if I am teaching my son or daughter to keep their eyes on anything more than Christ, whether it be a sport, whether it be a musical instrument, whether it be their GPA, whatever it might be, they could potentially inherit an idol from our own hearts as parents. Do we see that? Do we understand that? We need to. What sins or idols might you and I be passing on to our children or those we live with? People ask me all the time, they're like, you going to let Liam play football? Yeah, and they realize, I share I've had nine surgeries and Loved the game, and it was an idol for me. And I'm not, you know, I don't, yeah, it, 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 that's challenging for me to think about, right? And that's why my prayer for him every night remains the same. I just want him to be used for, uh, for God's glory. I want him to live up to the name that we gave him. Liam, if you don't know, means guardian. And so we pray that he'll be a guardian of the truth a guardian of the gospel, a guardian of his family, a guardian of his sisters, a guardian of his friends, especially his best friend, his wife. Pray for her every night as well. And if he does end up playing some sport, great. But I have to watch out, right? I, you know, I, 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 I want to see him just committed to the Lord. I want to see him committed to the Lord. What sins or idols might you and I be passing on to our children? It's a sobering question. And what is the key to preventing this from happening? The key is the great commandment. It is. The great commandment teaches us to love God with an undivided love. And first, this involves loving God for who he is. And our church understands this well. This isn't something radically new. There's a direct relationship between his love for us and our love for him. We, we, this is 1 John 4.19, all the way we love because he first loved us. We also know that our love for who God is will impact our obedience to his commands. Jesus affirms this direct correlation in John 14.15 when he said, If you love me, then you will keep my commandments. We understand this as we apply the gospel 
to our daily lives. As New Testament believers, we, we see that God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament and who Christ is and his tremendous outpouring of love and forgiveness through his life, death, and resurrection that stirs our hearts to love and repent and obey God. We see this. We understand this. Loving God with an undivided love also means loving him with all that you are. Look at verse 30. As Jesus is, is going to continue here. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. First notice the repetition of the word all used four times. And this emphasizes the comprehensive nature of how we are to love God. It involves all. It involves, it's undivided, right? And we see teaching from the Lord. You know, a man cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money, right? God wants all of us. All is actually the key word here. Again, it's not a divided love. It involves every aspect of who we are. The piling up of the terms heart, soul, mind, and strength is just a way of saying with your whole being. And it isn't intended to designate components of human nature. Some have tried to make these a complex psychological analysis of the dichotomy of man. But it is really a simple call to love God wholly and completely. R. Kent Hughes says it so well, it does not take much of a man to be a believer, but it takes all there is of him. End quote. What is called for is our total response of love and devotion to God. We must be certain that God occupies first place in our lives ahead of every other love or allegiance. When the Apostle Paul, when he spoke of the supremacy of Christ in Colossians 1.18, the purpose he shares is so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. That is it. First place in everything. And how can we say he is first and then place other things ahead of him and his will for our lives? How? And I'm asking, you guys know this by now, I don't have to reiterate it every time. I, I, I got beat up by this text all week, right? My, my heart has received all the jabs. I've been, I've been punched by it. But how is it that we can let all of these other things become more important? Right? The world coming in, trying to choke out our spiritual life, making things more important than discipleship, making things more important than serving in the church, making things more important than investing time with other people. We know that it's a battle and that we have to fight. We do. And our actions speak louder than our words. And in these words of Jesus, in Mark 12.30, we can see that he intends for us to place the Lord ahead of everything else in life. Sinclair Ferguson says, God is never satisfied with anything less than the devotion of our whole life for the whole duration of our lives. Heavy quote. Again, it is an undivided love. 
And I saw my wife just have a puzzling look, so I'm going to read it again. God is never satisfied with anything less than the devotion of our whole life for the whole duration of our lives. So how would you assess your love life when it comes to loving the Lord with all that you are? Perhaps you're in a good place. And your relationship with the Lord is incredibly intimate right now. Maybe he has captured your heart by helping you see his steadfast love, his ongoing forgiveness, his kindnesses that have led you to love and worship him consistently. And I know that's true. I know that's true for many. And I rejoice in that. But maybe you find yourself distant from the Lord and struggling spiritually right now. Regardless of where you are, I want to share some spiritual diagnostical questions that, I, that um, Esther graced, she graciously included at the bottom of the outline. Uh, Esther, who serves on the publishing team. And I'm also going to put them up here because rumor has it they're in like an eight font on the bottom of the bulletin. So uh, I'll put them up here uh, for us to read. And I just want to share these one at a time. Number one, is the Lord the all-consuming passion of my life? Number two, do I have a deep, intense, and abiding affection for my Lord? Number three, am I loyal to my God with an exclusive love? Number four, do I resist and even oppose anything or anyone that seeks to do my Lord harm? Number five, am I zealous to, with grace, defend my Lord's name and honor? Number six, do I enjoy spending time with my Lord? Do I do the things that please my Lord and increase his joy? Do I brag on my Lord to others? Do I tell my Lord that I love him? Do I talk with my Lord as much as I can? Remember, these are not the things that we do in order to get God to love us. They are the things that we do because we are loved by him. Right? And these, are, these, are, these aren't have-tos, these are, these are get-tos. We don't love him in order to get him to love us in return. It isn't, it, his love isn't quid pro quo. In fact, it's complete opposite. And you know, I'll just share with you that as I work through these questions this week, in my own heart, I found that I answered no to more than half of these questions. I did. And let's just say um, we go through peaks and valleys, don't we? Spiritually, we do. And it's just been a, a couple hard weeks for me. And I share that. So one, so that you can pray for me. I'm grateful for your prayers. But two, just so that there isn't some um, possible message being sent from the pre preacher who's got, got it all figured out, and, and these are yeses across the board. They're not always going to be yeses. And I just shared moments ago that there's a battle that's taking place. There's a spiritual battle between our flesh and the Spirit of God being at work in our hearts battling for our allegiance.
I, I'll share this. I can honestly say that all week I didn't feel like studying or writing. I didn't feel like opening up my Bible. I didn't feel like praying. You've been there? Yeah, I know you have. We've been there. And yet, it was God who graciously was even allowing me to study and prepare for this sermon and allowing me to see who he is and to see his love for me that, 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 that pulled me out of the trench, that pulled me out of the, the, the pitfall of despair, that took away my, my self-focus. Because that's what happens. We, we, we get blinded by our circumstances. We get blinded by our sin. And he brought me to a place of repentance. And though I'm still struggling and persevering by faith, he graciously allowed me to love who he is again and to love him with all that I am in Christ. And that is always much to him, right? Even though when you look at yourselves and when you're in a spiritual lull or you're going through a state of apathy or discouragement, dare I say it, depression, right? Happens. And it was during my study that I realized that you can just add the word how in front of each of these questions and then answer them. And they will, they'll help you see practical ways that we can love God with all that we are. Right? You can just put how. They're already listed in there. How is the Lord the all-consuming passion of my life? How, how is Answer that question. It's beautiful. How do I have a deep, intense, abiding affection for my Lord? And if I don't, you just confess that to him. Lord, I don't, but I want to. And I thank you for helping me to see who you are. And I, hate, I thank you for leading me to a place of repentance. How am I loyal to my God with an exclusive love? How do I resist and even oppose anything or anyone that seeks to do my Lord harm? How am I zealous to, with grace, defend my Lord's name and honor? How? 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 It's right there for the taking. So I just want to encourage you, that's your homework assignment for this week. Whether you you find yourself in a place um, of thriving or in a place of surviving, that you would just spend some time and answer those questions because those who are doing well, it's going to turn into praise. And those like me who haven't been doing so well, you know what it will do? It will bring you to a place of repentance. It will bring you to a place of renewal. It will restore the joy of your salvation. And, and, and that's where you've, you've heard that acronym joy before, right? J stands for Jesus, O for others, Y yourself. A helpful way to restore joy in your own heart is to think about that, that acronym. What a blessing. Well, interestingly enough, our Lord did not give the rabbi just one commandment, but as we'll see, he gives him two. 
Both commandments are grounded in our responsibility to love. First, love God with an undivided love. Second, love others created in God's image. And we're going to get a bird's eye view of loving others, much like we did for, for loving God. And perhaps if the Lord wills in the coming weeks, maybe we'll do some independent messages on loving God and loving others, whether that's first hour or equipping hour, we'll, we'll see. But for now, we need to see the complete picture and the continuity of this passage. Jesus added a second commandment in order to set forth the complete foundation of love. Look at verse 31. Jesus says, The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And here Jesus explains that the Godward and manward aspects of love are inseparable. And it was the Apostle John in 1 John 4.21 who affirmed our Lord's teaching when he wrote, And this commandment we have from him, referring to Jesus, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Jesus is quoting Leviticus 19.18 when he said, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And love is the same word as in the previous command, so technically it's the same command with different direct objects. We see that, right? That's why you, you hear people even say they don't even know. Sometimes they're like, is it one command or is it two? Well, it's both. It really is. Because it, it, when it comes to the, the, the verb to love, agapao, uh, it, it, is, it is a decisional love. It's, it's a love of the will. That's why we can be called to love our enemies. That's why, we can be, that's why we can still love and choose to love our spouse when things aren't going so well. It's decisional. It isn't based on feelings, but it's a choice to love. The big question is, who is your neighbor? Let's go ahead and elbow the person sitting right next to you. No, just kidding. But, but, but that's, that, that's the question that needs to be answered. When it came to Hebrew tradition, it was just it was the fellow Jew. And there was a limitation, and we know this just from the teachings in other scriptures, that they limited their interaction, right, with, with Gentiles and with those who were considered non-Jews. Therefore, one of the most significant elements in the teaching of Jesus was to redefine the neighbor as everybody, including the hated Samaritans and Gentiles, which Luke 10, 29-37 teaches. And not ironically, that follows immediately after Luke's account of the discussion about the greatest commandment. Well, here the difference is the measure of love for the neighbor. He is to be loved as yourself. And the statement, as yourself, does not justify the self-love advocated by modern psychology as necessary for healthy self-image. It merely acknowledges that human beings do love themselves far too much, in fact, and that God and others deserve even more. But what does loving your neighbor look like practically? And how would the scribes and Pharisees interpreted what Jesus just shared with them? Commentator D.A. Carson encourages us to examine the context where Leviticus 19.18 is located. And this was actually pretty cool. This was a, a, a pleasant surprise in my study as I saw, like, yeah, really, what did it, you know, what, what did it involve? There you, you, we're going to discover that loving your neighbor 
as yourself means a lot. And here's what it would have meant to Israel. And I put these up on the slide. We can see them all at once. I think they'll all pull up. Um, you probably made it so they would go up one at a time. You're the man, Nate. But um, we, can, we can see these all, all at once. And um, I just want to sh- share these. It involved uh, caring for the poor, according to Leviticus 19.10. Not stealing, not lying, being fair in business dealings, care for the deaf, care for the blind, dealing justly with all. Avoiding slander, not jeopardizing the life of your neighbor, not hating your brother in your heart, rebuking your neighbor when necessary for his and your good, not taking revenge or bearing a grudge against others. And so we see very clearly, God didn't leave it to their imaginations, right? He spelled out what this was to look like and and the sundry laws that were, were important. And the irony is that when we get to the New Testament, the expectation is even broader, but the number of commands is significantly less. And this brings us to the supremacy of the command in the New Testament. In the parallel account in Matthew twenty-two forty, Jesus says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And all God's people said, wow, everything depends on these. In fact, that word depend can be translated hangs. It could be translated, the whole law and prophets literally hang on these two commandments. And this is what the rest of the New Testament passages teach us about loving our neighbor, which really means everyone. In Romans 13.10, God's word records, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. James 2.8 says, if you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. The New Testament is brief when talking about our neighbor, but the supremacy of the command, it cannot be doubted. The same way that loving God and loving your neighbor was at the center of the law of the Old Testament, it's at the, the, the center of the law of Christ in the New Testament. Well, this question ultimately leads us to a place that is going to serve as the final point in our outline. And it asks this question, have you applauded the greatest commandment or have you applied it? The scribe in our story is going to applaud Jesus' answer. Look at verse 32. The scribe says, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. I'm going to explain when we study our next passage when he starts talking about David and, and he's trying to help them uh, understand the Trinity that I believe that the scribe is being a little uh, deceptive here. Um, that's just a, a little prequel to what, what's coming. And, and he goes on in verse 33, And to love him with all the heart and with all understanding and with all strength and to love one neighbors as himself. And I want you to notice what he did right there. Did you notice how he just spoke about it in third person? Wasn't, he didn't say my. I think that also is reflective of the heart. Again, I'm not reading into this and I'm going to explain more. He says, This is much more than all burnt offerings in the sacrifices. This sounds like a pretty good answer, doesn't it? When you look at it at face value, 
you would say, well, it sounds like he responded okay. Remember, the scribe is standing with all the Pharisees in the temple where all the burnt offerings and sacrifices are taking place. Yet Jesus knew that he was giving him lip service because he knew what was in their hearts. It was a desire to applaud the great commandment, but a failure to apply it. How do we know this? It is literally moments later when Jesus is going to rebuke all the scribes and the Pharisees starting in verse 38. Woes that are described in detail, several woes that will come and spelled out for us in in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 23. In verse 34, Jesus declares that the scribe answered intelligently and is not far from the kingdom of God, which was a stunning remark, and here's why. If anyone were to think that they were inside the kingdom, it was who Jesus was talking to, the scribes and the Pharisees. And so, for him to suggest, and we don't know the tone of how Jesus responded, right? We can't hear his voice. But I believe, and again, I feel like I'm, uh, you know, I'm not trying to look into this. I just know in the context where it's going, right? He, he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Well, this is a spiritual punch to the gut, right? They, they, they already believe that the kingdom is theirs. And we saw in, in the previous uh, account in Mark 10 when the rich young ruler came, right? And how the disciples were baffled because he basically walked away sad because he knew that he wasn't willing to give up his money, the rich young ruler, right? And the disciples just say, Lord, then who can be saved? If this guy isn't in, then who can possibly be saved. And Jesus' point that in God's economy, there's something more important than all the technicalities of law-keeping. There's something more important than all the sacrifices and ceremonies. What really matters is the condition of the heart. What matters is the quality of a person's relationship with God. His relationships within the community and with those in need. Love is not legalism or ceremonialism. Love is the way of God's kingdom. After Jesus declares that the scribe is not far from the kingdom, again, a a stunning remark, notice the response of the people. Nobody dared to ask him any more questions. They were afraid because, again, they're like, if If these guys aren't in, then who can possibly make it? And in time, the disciples would understand. How close is close enough when it comes to entering the kingdom of God? Knowing truths about God and understanding his law isn't enough. Unless our religion shows us our need for Christ, it will actually keep us from him. And I realize this is, there's a weightiness and a gravitas to this this conclusion and perhaps you thought there would be more encouragement when our lord shared you are not far from the kingdom of god and 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 i apologize but i have a consolation for you that's going to serve as our conclusion and it's a testimony that r kent hughes writes about john wesley of course you guys know um, much about the wesley brothers but let let me just share this with you because and i'll read it quickly Um, 
It says, John Wesley was born in 1703, the 15th child of Samuel Wesley. Okay, there was actually 19 of them. So, Danilo's, you got a ways to go yet, okay? Um, he, he enjoyed a good upbringing, upbringing under his unusually talented, dedicated mother and went on to a brilliant career at Charterhouse in Oxford where he was elected fellow where he, he was elected fellow of Lincoln College in 1726. There he served as a double professor of Greek and logic. After serving on his father's curate on two occasions, he was ordained a priest in the Church of England in 1728. So you may not be paying attention to the dates, but he was born in 1703. He's made a priest at 1728, 25 years old. He's a priest. 23, he was teaching as a professor in the college. Brilliant. Returning to Oxford, he joined a group of undergraduates led by his brother Charles and the later-to-be great evangelist George Whitfield, a group dedicated to building a holy life. It was derisively nicknamed by fellow Oxonians the Holy Club. Though Wesley was not yet truly converted, he met with these men for prayer, the study of Greek of the Greek New Testament and devotional exercises. He set aside an hour each day for private prayer and reflection. He took the sacrament of Holy Communion each week and set himself to conquer every sin. He fasted twice a week, visited the prisons, and assisted the poor and the sick. Doing all this helped him imagine he was a Christian. In 1735, and this is at age 31, Still unconverted, he accepted an invitation from the Society of the Propagation of the Gospel to become a missionary to the American Indians in Georgia. It was a great fiasco. He utterly failed as a missionary, undergoing miserable conflicts with his colleagues and almost dying of disease. When he returned to England, he wrote, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? His mission experience taught him the wickedness and waywardness of his own heart. However, not all was lost, because in his travels aboard the ship, he met some German Moravian Christians whose simple faith made a great impression on him. When he returned to London, he sought out one of their leaders. Through a series of conversations, to quote Wesley's own words, he was clearly convinced of unbelief, of the want of that faith whereby alone we are saved. Then, on the morning of May 24th, 1738, something happened that Wesley would never forget. He opened his Bible haphazardly, and his eyes fell on the text in Mark 12:34. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Wesley said that the words reassured him, and, well, they should, because before he went to bed that night, he crossed the invisible line into the kingdom of God. This text was to become Wesley's life verse, a reminder of the shape of his life for the first 35 years of his existence. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Beautifully, not only the verse, but its setting, the Lord conversing with a scribe, a lost clergyman of the house of Israel, bears remarkable parallels to Wesley's own lostness. Both were clergymen, both were highly educated, Both were Bible scholars who knew the scriptures inside and out. Both were confronted with Christ who said to both, You are not far from the kingdom of God. 
end quote. That's powerful, isn't it? That's powerful. Knowing truths about God and understanding his law isn't enough. Unless our religion shows our need for Christ, it's in vain. It will actually keep us from him. Oh, dear friend, are you someone here today that is merely close to the kingdom? Am I someone here today who is merely close to the kingdom? Am, am, are, do we have a blurred concept? Are we trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ completely? We must take Christ by the hand and commit our lives to loving him and loving others for the remainder of our days. May love, the great commandment, help us discern where we're at and being faithful to it. Pray with me. And worship team, we're, gonna, we're over time, so we're going to not have our response. I'm just going to close our time in prayer and we'll be dismissed. Gracious God, I want to pray for all of us. This was a, a weighty message, and Lord, um, I just thank you for the reality of the great commandment and how it calls us to, to look to see who you are. For Israel, it called them to look to see who you are in the Old Testament. As New Testament Christians, it calls us to look to who you are in the New Testament. And we see a loving God. We see a merciful Savior we see a God who is willing to forgive us time and time again as we return to the cross and as we repent of our sin time and time again. And the cleansing and the renewal that comes from that refreshes our soul, even in, in dark times, even in, during difficult times. And I pray, Father, for our church family. I pray that the realness of, of who you are and our, our desire as a corporate family, would be to draw close to you so that we will effectively love our neighbor, love each other. And Lord, for all the times that we have found ourselves falling short, we're thankful that you have pursued us with your love, that you've brought us back, and you've helped us to see that we can start all over again, that we can have victory. And Lord, I also want to pray that if there's someone here today that has yet to take uh, your son by the hand, that has yet to um, grab a hold of the kingdom, and the only way that you can do that is by grabbing a hold of Christ, that you would lead them and help them to see their need, to repent of their unbelief, and to wrap their arms fully and completely around Christ. Lord, we thank you so much for this time and the study of your word. We look forward to what our next hour brings as we learn how to communicate to you. We commit that time to you as well. We ask you to bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.